Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. In today's Desi Craft Chat, we have Vohini Vara discussing her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, how she braided multiple storylines together, why she ended with a question about human ambition, and how her MFA helped her bring this first book into the world, and much more. Vahini Vara is a writer and editor. She was born in Canada to Indian immigrants and grew up there and in Oklahoma and the Seattle suburbs. She began her journalism career as a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She's also written and edited for a number of other venues like The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Harper's, The New Republic, Business Week, Fortune, Wired, and many more. She's a mentor at the Lighthouse Writers' Workshops uh, Book Project and the secretary for Periplus, a collective mentoring writers of color. She also sits on the board of the Krishna D. Vara Foundation, which awards an annual scholarship to a graduating high school student at Mercer Island High School in memory of her sister Krishna, who died of cancer in 2001. Currently, Vahini lives in Colorado with her family. I recently wrote a micro-review for Vara's novel at NPR for their mid-year Books We Love series, so I'm just going to share that with you as a way of introducing the book. The Immortal King Rao was more than a decade in the making, braiding three connected stories and as many genres into a capacious narrative. Journalist Vahini Vara gives us a generational saga of a Dalit family in South India, the birth and rise of Silicon Valley, and a speculative dystopia of shareholder governments. Whether exploring the past or near future, Vara's keen journalistic skills reveal aspects of post-independence India, the diasporic immigrant life, tech-driven hierarchies, climate change, and more, in ways that prompt questions of our present realities. The most important one, perhaps, is this. What have I told you your social capital depended almost entirely on the privilege you were born with, and not any effort of your own. That question actually happens somewhere, I think about two-thirds of the way in the book. Um, on a personal note, let me just say, this is a highly ambitious book. Some reviewers have said how perhaps the scope is too large to do justice uh, or sufficient justice to its many themes and characters. And, and no question, there's going to be some of that with any novel of this size. Here's how I feel about this in general. I'd rather have our Desi writers go big or go home. This doesn't mean throw everything they can find into their book in some random manner, and not that Vara has done that. But show us your range. 
show us your fearlessness in tackling complex big topics and show us a new pathway for Desi writing, right? So to me, Varro's book does all of this. Is it perfect? Who wants perfect? Is there even such a thing as a perfect novel? Here's Vahini Vara now. Well, first of all, congrats on the book being out today. Thank you. It's a big debut, and I saw over the weekend the New York Times favorable, great reviews. Um, So that's great. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, I'm so excited to do this show. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of it and of everything you're doing. So it's really nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, everything's on a modest scale right now, because I'm trying to work on my own book projects. But at some point, we'll, we'll take it up a notch. But yes. All right. So, you know, the first thing that jumped out to me about the immortal King Rao when I when I read it, is how capacious it is. It has a lot within it, right? And, and this comes out in, in, in everybody's reviews as well. You, you, you start with the Dalit community in India from, you know, independence onwards, how things change for them. You've got the family saga. And then it becomes slowly this immigrant diasporic novel in a way, the classic uh, tech immigrant, Indian tech immigrant, but of course not classic because not all of them have the trajectory that King Rao did. Um, And then we go, you know, into this tech-driven speculative um, dystopia with the climate change. And that actually, interestingly, even though it is dystopia, it has a lot of our present world in it in a way. Mm -hmm. So um, the question I have is, I've read in some places that you started the novel 13 years ago, and one of the trigger points was your dad telling you, well, write about the coconut growth, right? Yeah. So that that part, I won't, you know, belabor that point because you've mentioned it in other interviews. But the question I have is about the scope of this novel with this capaciousness that I mentioned. Was that always a vision that you wanted all of it in? Or did that evolve as you wrote and you said, well, I got to put this in, I got to put this in. So I'm just curious about that vision. Yeah. Okay. So, um, my, as, as you said, my, my dad gave me the idea to write about um, this coconut grove, which is, which is based on the coconut grove where my dad grew up and, and um, somewhat on my dad's, on my family, on my dad's side. Um, so what happened then, Jenny, which like, I, I've heard people talk about this kind of thing on your show before, but, um, you know, I haven't, I, I grew up like, vis- I visited that coconut grove where my dad grew up you know, several times as a kid, but we weren't the kind of family that went back like every summer and spent two months there or anything like that. Like I visited maybe three or four times as a kid. And then as an adult, like went back and visited again a number of times, but it wasn't like the kind of place, I didn't feel like I had like a sort of like intimate familiarity with what it would have been like to grow up Dalit in the 1950s on this coconut grove in South India, um, um, in Andhra Pradesh specifically. And so there was like this craft problem for me where I was like, I am really interested in writing about this place, but I don't feel like I, as a writer, as like a sort of like narrative voice have the authority to like write convincingly from the point of view of somebody who would have grown up on a coconut grove like this in the 1950s as a Dalit boy. Um, And so, 
around that time I was my husband and I were watching the Battlestar Galactica reboot that came out in like the mid 2000s and there's this technology in there um that allows people to sort of like digitally um like read and download minds human minds and so um honestly like that aspect so in the book in the novel the narrator Athena is King Rao's daughter and she's able long story short she's like able to um to to read his mind like he's she's able to access his consciousness his memories and things that have happened to him and so I sort of invented that to like solve this craft problem I have which it had which was that I like didn't know how to write I, I felt like I couldn't write just from the perspective from the point of view of King Rao himself um at the same time, I had just been writing about tech companies at the Wall Street Journal as a as a reporter, and I did know that I wanted King Rao to move from this coconut grove to the U.S. and start a tech company. Like I already had that idea in my mind, um, and so over time, like it took a really really long time, actually, I think a matter of years to figure this out. Um, I had this narrative voice. I had King Rao, but I didn't know like what that narrative voice was. I didn't even know actually that it was going to be King Rao's daughter. It was just like for a long time, just like this, this disembodied voice. Like there wasn't even a human attached to it. And then people would read drafts of the book and be like, wait, so who's telling the story again? Like, does this person have a body? Like, do they have a gender? Like, what actually is this voice? And so I realized that like, and at first I'd be like, oh, I, I don't know. I don't think it's really important. And then I realized it was important. Then I had to create Athena as like an actual living, breathing person. Um, and then once I created Athena, I realized that I needed a storyline for her. So like the way she's moving through this dystopian future world was the last thing I wrote. It came very late in the process because I came to realize that like, if I've got this person narrating King Rao's story, like that that narrative voice, at least in this book, like felt like she needed to have a story of her own, like a reason for being, a reason for telling her her father's story. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I I'm I, I've heard cases, and it's happened to me a couple times in my short stories too, where you start with a voice and mm -hmm. you start with that voice telling us something, but then you have to now create this whole story around the voice, right? right. And that allows you, well, that's that's an interesting, I like that because that allowed you now as you created the story around Athena is to bring in all these aspects of her life in this, in this near future that you, you've got, which, yeah. which I think is great. And, and I like what you said just then about, you know, um, feeling like, okay, you know, you couldn't write it in say King's voice, because I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I grew up in India, right? And I go right. back often. And even I, because I've been out of India for enough uh, time, I sometimes have to think to myself, you know, can I really represent that kind of character? Because, mm -hmm. And I find sometimes diasporic novels that do that, where, you know, you've got a second generation um, person writing a, a whole book set in India that they've only seen during vacation. It, it's tough. Yeah. But what, what, I thought, what I thought you've done very cleverly one, you've you've given us this this voice, Athena, and then you've given us this access to King's mind and the internet. So you're <laughs> able to, you know, you it's it's a, it's a very interesting device because what you're doing is you're saying, look, she couldn't possibly know some of this stuff, but you know, here she has she's able to connect her mind to the internet, and that's how she knows. Or that right. she's connecting her mind. And I thought that was good. I I 
I know not everybody can write a book that way because then everybody's <laughs> writing near future dystopia. But I thought that was a good way for you to get around that issue, or as you said, that, that dilemma of how do I write this? And, and it allowed you to bring in all these other things. So, so talk, that leads me to my you know, next question, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the tech world because I, I come from the tech world as well and that was your journalism beat. So I can't help but see certain aspects of the real tech world and I, I'm gonna come to that. Mm -hmm. But I wanna talk about the research, you know, because um, you do give us a lot of information throughout um, both about, you know, the, the time in India, then about, you know, the 70s in, in you know, on the, on the West Coast, just as the whole computer industry is coming to life. So you, you almost, you're giving us this historical sort of um, background and context for what's going on. And that must have taken a certain amount of research. And I know, you know, I write and read a lot of historical fiction. I teach it and I know it's easy to go down rabbit holes. So talk a bit about your process with the research. Yeah, so, um, right, there was a lot to have to research um, because the book sort of covers so many time periods and so many subjects. Um, um, I, to, so I, to, to research the part that's set in India, um, I went there, like, so in addition to just going on vacation as a, as a kid, as you say, um, I did a sort of specific research trip in the summer of 2010. I went for like a, a month to India and I both spent time in Hyderabad where I have a lot of family and like met with some scholars, um, some Dalit scholars, for example, um, who were really well-versed in the history of caste in that particular part of India over the course of the 20th century. Um, and I went back to the coconut grove where my dad grew up and like talked to a bunch of relatives. I actually don't speak Telugu, which is my family's language. Um, so I, I went with my uncle, one of my uncles and one of my cousins and they helped me have conversations with family members who, who you know, didn't speak English and I didn't speak Telugu. And so I took a bunch of notes um, and just like wandered around and took notes about what the place was like too. I met with like a coconut expert um, and so that's sort of that's that was a big part of my research for the for the India section of the book, um, and really that research really informed the India sections of the book. Um, when it came to the to the sort of tech sections, the the parts where where King Rao's company Coconut is getting started in the nineteen seventies, I um, my first beat at the Wall Street Journal was Oracle, the enterprise technology company, and so. When I started on that beat, I was reading a lot about like the rise of the tech industry in the 1970s because that's when Larry Ellison founded Oracle. So I was like reading biographies of Larry Ellison and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and like oral histories of what that time was like. And so I'd already done a lot of that research just like for this for this reporting beat I had. Um, and then while I was writing the book, I revisited all that and kind of intentionally like normally in a work of fiction, like you want to sort of like depart entirely from what's already in the public record. But I also sort of like wanted the history of coconut to feel somewhat familiar to sort of like draw in elements of like the actual history that we know about companies like Apple and Microsoft and Oracle. Um, and so that was that was a fun thing to do. But there was also like this challenge in figuring out how to do that while making it King's own story. And then that's where his own roots as an immigrant, as an Indian American, as a Dalit person, um, uh, as somebody who came from a rural background, like all of that sort of like informed how he moves through this US tech world in the 1970s in a way that like Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or Bill Gates wouldn't have. 
Right. Well, can I just say, I, I, I was smiling just now when you said Oracle. My husband works for Oracle. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Well, and he works on the tech side. He's not like, you know, I mean, he he's happy with being, you know, at that level. He didn't ever have ambitions to become a Larry Ellison. But, sure. you know, what? when you talk about Ellison and you talk about like, like for example, there were there were certain sections, like you said, you would, you wanted to show some of that energy and and a reality of the 70s like you had you know Wally living with his mother in the basement I mean that to me was like a Wozniak kind of character right yeah yeah and then you had the whole coconut versus computer rivalry which had shades of the Apple versus IBM or mm-hmm. you know, even Apple versus Microsoft I thought and so I thought you know that and then you show um how things evolve and we we get to the 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 dystopia part about what the future can do with the brains talking i'll get to that in a bit with the elon musk thing but i i thought that was interesting um because you know we when we read uh and i've read all almost all those books that you've mentioned as well i've still got them on my shelves because I, yeah, I lived yeah. in the bay area and i went through a phase where i wanted to know and it was all white men it was so frustrating <laughs> you know but that's why i when i when i heard about your book i thought oh great she's writing about a, a you know a brown guy a desi guy yeah uh, being the next steve jobs or elon musk you know um and so i i was i'm, I'm glad you did that because I imagine there are stories, and I'm talking beyond the Sundar Pichai and beyond the, um, you know, the five or six or seven um, CEOs of the biggest companies now that are tech, uh, that are, you know, driven by um, South Asian men. But I'm, I'm thinking there are other stories that we don't even know about, mm-hmm. right, from the 70s onwards, yeah. from when what you described as, you know, the, the, uh, the immigration boom where, you know, immigrants were coming not on boats, but they were coming on planes and and coming to get educated here and, and then get into the tech world. And I imagine, like, I, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, boy, I bet there are true stories. Um, and some of them are probably more fantastic than we can, we know. And right. so my question is, as you were trying to bring in these realistic aspects of this growth of the tech industry from the 70s onwards and then even you know you you've got the social media influencer who turns into a president in the, in this future world and you've got this whole you know Elon Musk like open ai and neuralink kind of stuff with the harmonica and the clarinet projects mm-hmm. you've got the privatization of infrastructure which isn't so far fetched we've been seeing that happen in india by the way right for the past right, two yeah. decades with adani and ambani and those private um you know billionaires and their corporations but what i what i thought was as i was reading was was there any particular aspect of the crazy tech world that you covered as a journalist and i'm going to come to that in a second that you really wanted to get into the story but somehow you couldn't i'm always oh. curious oh that's an interesting question um like if you were to write if if you were writing it now right what would you you be putting in there that you know isn't in there right now well you know what um one thing I've been thinking about is I I wrote this book mostly before the sort of um this isn't really about like dystopian elements of tech but like I wrote this book mostly before um uh 
everything emerged in the news about um about caste discrimination in the tech industry in the US right oh, yeah, um, the Cisco stuff you mean the Cisco thing yeah. yep and then and then after that lawsuit involving Cisco like all these tech workers um sort of mm -hmm. coming out and saying like yes I faced this as, as well mm -hmm. um I that was not I have to admit on my radar during most of the writing of this book um and so, you know, I have I have relatives who are Dalit who work in the tech industry, but it's just not something that had come up. Um, and so, like, I imagine this world in which, like, a tech company is not only run by a South Asian man, but by a Dalit man, which, like, at the time that I started writing felt even more radical because all these tech CEOs, like, they're not these Indian American tech CEOs, like, hadn't emerged yet. Um, and... Um, I think if I were writing this book today, like I think I would have engaged more with like what it would mean to be a Dalit tech worker who's not a CEO and not the most powerful man in the world, you know? Um, because yeah. in the way that like, like I don't think it's the case that in the universe of the book, because King Rao, a Dalit man, is the most powerful man in the world, like in the book, I don't expect that that should mean that like, you know, casteism is gone, right? And caste hierarchies have disappeared and it, within, the rank and file in the tech industry, there is no casteism. Like, I think all of that would be very present in the world of the book, in the universe of the book. And it's not so much on the page in this book itself. And I think I I would have liked to, I think if, if I were writing this book now, or if I'd had, you know, 15 years rather than 13 years to write the book, I think I would have made that more present in the pages. Yeah, you know, you make an interesting point because I mean, I can see how not so much in the 70s, but maybe as you get into the, um, you know, late 90s and the 2000s, um, as more and more Indian people came into the tech world and grew up, you know, I, I would, I could see potentially where some of them maybe harbored um, some animosity, you know, toward right. somebody like King Rao to say, well, right. you know, hey, I, I come from a Brahmin family and I should be the CEO of the world, you know? Yeah, right, um, right, yeah. exactly. Um, but but that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting point. And, um, you know, I mean, that, again, what you described, uh, the discrimination, my God, I can, it's a whole separate conversation. I, mm -hmm. I am not, I mean, I, I'm not Dalit, obviously, but I saw it happen in front mm -hmm. of me. Yeah, because I used to manage teams, right? I mm -hmm. managed teams when I worked at, at, at VMware and Accenture and all these other companies where I was managing teams where we had a lot of Indian folks mm -hmm. and within, within these teams, you could, you could, you know, hear and see the animosity and, and that anyways, that's a whole separate thing, but, but right. um, um, it, it's interesting that you say that, you know, now, now talking about, you know, how a lot of what you've written as far as the dystopia isn't as far fetched as we might think. Mm -hmm. especially as we look at the last um, few years with the elections and how the algorithms, social media algorithms have influenced uh, voter decisions. There's, you know, you, you recently, I think you shared something about using AI to write a whole story. That yeah. was my sister, right? Yeah. I mean, we've got intelligent AI now. We've got Elon Musk doing this Neuralink stuff and everything. And I think about how it's not so far-fetched, right? And I, I, I'm thinking about a question um, or, or something, one of the most important, to me, what is one of the most important questions in your book? And I will read it out. Um, in the ARC, I have its page 193 for anyone who might be following, but I don't know what page number it'll be in the, in the, in the final book um, version. But anyways, it's, the question is, what if I told you your social capital 
depended almost entirely on the privilege you were born with and not any effort of your own. Mm -hmm. Now, and I want to just talk a little bit about this in terms of algorithms and social capital, because you know, we, we talk about this in general when we talk about privilege and entitlement. We don't talk about it so much in terms of social media because everybody thinks, or, or a lot of people think, that social media has leveled the playing field. It's allowed people to have a voice and to, to rally, um, you know, supporters and, and bring people together. As much as it has divided, it has also brought people together. Now, for me personally, I joined social media very late, 2017. And mm -hmm. I'm very disciplined about what I put out there, which is mostly yes. book stuff, right? Because I see it as a, as a, for me, it's a business tool and my business is writing. So I'm on, yeah. and I'm on Twitter because the other three platforms scare the heck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I, because I see what kind of stuff people share. Yeah. And I know how easy it can be to put personal and controversial stuff and rack up thousands of followers. And of course, you know, you and I both know that would help sell books, right? right. That would, and yet, you know, I, I see some of the positive too, which is it's helped me gain some level of visibility for my work, but editors have reached out and commissioned work because of a tweet. You, I've, I've seen you post, you know, hey, pitch me. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, sometimes an essay will go viral because and get more readers because of a tweet and then some publisher will say, okay, yeah, I'll take a book on that. And so, you know, your book is not giving us easy answers about mm -hmm. social capital and social media. But I, I have a personal question here before I get into the whole journalism part of your life, which is how are you as a writer and a journalist yourself navigating social media? Mm. And, and what would you advise, say there was a, you know, a, a young person coming out with a debut novel, just like you later this year, how would you advise them to approach social media? Mm, yeah. Um... Right. Um, I have so much to say on this topic. Um, in the part of the reason that in the novel, you know, citizens have become shareholders and they each sort of like have a have a generally very insignificant stake, but a stake in, you know, the in, in global capital. Um, and to me, like what I was trying to get at with that is the way in which like like we we as individuals are like so wrapped up in um, in the global economic system broadly speaking, but also so wrapped up in social media that like like this world has been created in which these corporations' interests like are aligned with what we think of think of as our interests, right? So like like I want to have more followers on social media so that right people read the articles I write, people maybe buy my books. Um, you know, people care about what I have to say as a journalist and, as, and, and, and a writer, like those things are important. And yet, like, those are also things that serve these corporations. Um, they, they're things that like, if I, if I say too much on social media, like there, there's potential in privacy implications for me. Um, so, so I think about all that, um, uh, you know, just today I tweeted something about my book coming out and for, for a minute I tweet, so my, 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 my family, my husband and my kid made me a bunt cake. Um, and I, for a second, I was writing like the name of my husband and, you know, I, I one version of the tweet was like my husband and seven-year-old made me a bunt cake. And then I just deleted it and changed it to my family because it felt like, oh. like potentially too much information, even just to say my husband and seven-year-old, you know, um, so I, I think about that a lot. Um, 
what advice would I have? I mean, I do think that social media can be a useful tool for us as writers. Um, it's a way for us to get our, our message across, to get our work across. I think this is maybe especially true from people from like otherwise marginalized backgrounds who like, you know, maybe don't have like already have connections to editors in the industry who are going to publish our work and social media is the way that um, we're going to make these form these relationships. I think that often happens. Um, uh, the line I draw like you is that I generally use social media mostly professionally, like mostly to write about my work itself. Um, like you, I'll like, I'll, I'll be chatty on social media, you know, like I'll talk about my feelings about things, but I don't, you know, like I don't mention my son by name, for example, I might sometimes say the six-year-old or the seven-year-old now. Oh. Um, I don't post pictures of my family. Um, oh. So I, for, you know, for myself, draw certain lines like that. I'm not saying that's what that makes sense for everyone, but just, you know, like knowing that there are large corporations um, that have access to all this stuff that we're posting and that you can imagine a future in which that's true of governments as well. Um, I feel like for me, the choice has been to like be more conservative rather than less and conservative as in not politically speaking. Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and th that's the reason I asked because, you know, your book is about the, the evils of where that can go, right? In a way, it's, right. it, it's a very nuanced way. It's not like a black and white, you know, here's an easy answer, but it, it does do that. And I, you know, it made me think as well, because I've always felt that sharing too much, like you said, you know, sharing that kind of stuff, it, it's like giving up parts of your identity, because what mm -hmm. happens is you then feed off of the likes, and then you, you feel like, oh, that feels good, let me do more of that, and then suddenly you're becoming this other person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me come to the anarchy that you talk about or write about in the, in, in the story. We have this group of people that slowly growing, uh, they call the X's, and they um, break away from this capitalistic shareholder government, right? And I, I mean, I was rooting for them. I was hoping for Athena to lead a whole new revolution with mm -hmm. Elephant, you know, just, and that's not exactly how it went down, which I won't give away, but yeah. So, yeah, but, but in a way, the way you ended it, I felt like you were making a pretty strong statement about who will win in that kind of world. So my question is, did you at any point explore any other options or directions for the story? Or was that the inevitable way you saw things going? And again, we're not giving away how things go. I, I don't want to give that away yet, but just, you know, how did, did you always know the story would end that way? I, once I figured out um, that Athena had to have her own storyline um, and understood what that storyline needed to be, um, the book sort of moved me to, without, again, without giving it away, the book did kind of like move me toward, the writing itself moved me toward the ending that the book has. Um, so there was never a point where I experimented with other possibilities. There was a long period in which the ending, I will say there was a long, 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 long period um, in which the ending was a lot more ambiguous than it currently is. Um, so I will say that, like, I think for a long time, I didn't want to let the book go where it seemed to be going. <laughs> like I wanted to sort of protect my characters, you know? Um, uh, but, um, 
but no, there weren't like there there weren't significant um, other options that that I explored. Um, and it came less from like um, I don't know. It, it feels like it came less from like my sort of like explicit personal beliefs about the way the world is inevitably going or any point I wanted to make about that is just like in the context of the book that I was writing, like with all these things in motion that I'd put on the page, it did feel inevitable that like the outcome that ends the book ends up having is like that was the outcome for this particular book. You know, um, I would hate to, you know, I don't claim to have a crystal ball about the way the world is going. Right. Um, but I did like want the the book to be about like one, one, potential, you know, one potential possibility outcome. Yeah, no, I, I thought about that a lot, especially when I came to your closing, you know, with the last paragraph. And, and I mean, I always think all good books should leave us with many questions to ponder, right, whether explicitly or implicitly. And in this case, you've actually given us a, an explicit question. You've ended the book on a question. And the question mm. is, after all our trouble, is that it then? Did it all mean nothing but itself? Can you talk a little bit about that? Talk a little bit about that question and, and the craft decision as, as well, you know, to end with the question, but also just in general about the question. Yeah, I mean, on one level, the book is about human ambition, right? Um, it's about like the desire that we all have, whether we're, you know, CEOs of, of global world dominating companies or not to like make something of ourselves in the world and like do something useful in the world. Um, and it's something that like, I think like every significant character in the book is trying to figure out for themselves. Like, how am I going to make my mark? Um, like sort of on an ind individual level. And then also in this like collective sense too, like how am I going to make a mark on this community, on this world? Um, everybody asks that question with really good intentions. Um, and um, and it seems to me that it's possible that like, like while that's the way the human mind works and humans have done great things in the world because this is the way the human mind works, um, there's a sort of like grander, more universal sense in which, you know, like none of it matters, right? Um, and. And I don't mean to overstate that. That's what's so great about fiction. Like, like I, I think it's like too black and white to, 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 to make a statement like none of it matters in the end. Um, and I don't even, I don't, I don't really believe that either. You know, like I believe in ambition. I think of myself as ambitious. Um, I believe in human creativity and human potential. Um, and yet at the same time, there's some tension between that, I think. And like the sort of universal, the universal scale of things um, in which one tiny humans, tiny life decisions, like don't matter. Um, and so, um, so I wanted the book to raise the question. Um, I don't know that like I or anyone has the answer to that question, but it felt like, like the right question to, to leave readers with at the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I thought so too. I thought given how much you've covered, you know, there can't be any one single takeaway. I mean, I, I hate to ask people that anyways. I don't, I, I don't like to boil books down to a single takeaway because yeah. then to me, that defeats the purpose of the book. So, but I'm glad you ended with a question. Thank and you. Um, yeah, and, and so I wanna come to a couple of quick questions and then we'll wrap up. But am I right in, it, it, did, you have an MFA from Iowa, correct? That's right. 
Okay, and then you've had the journalism career. So yeah. my question to you is, talk a little bit about how the MFA might have helped and hindered or hindered your uh, this this first book and also the journalism career which which had more of an influence would you say mm. and and, and I, i'm not saying one is better than the other but you know they both i'm sure helped and or hindered in some ways right so it, just talk a little bit about that please yeah no i'm glad you asked that question because i feel like you know like the sort of like a meta narrative around a book's existence can kind of like take on a life of its own you know um and i feel like the meta to the extent that there's like a meta narrative for the existence of like this very young new book i feel like um i feel like it's about like my having been a tech reporter which in, and and having like talked to my dad and gotten this idea from my dad and then this book emerged um and in reality like those are some of the ingredients that led to the creation of this book but my mfa i would say was like far far more influential in like giving me the tools I needed to actually write a book. Um, so in that like debate over whether MFAs are useful or not, I'm very pro MFA. Um, I think, you know, like I'm very pro MFAs that you don't need to pay for, which like are plentiful these days. Um, so if any listeners um, don't don't realize that, like you can totally get an MFA and not have to pay for it. Right. Um, and I, I would not have known how to begin writing this book. Um, in my particular case without having like just spent two years um, sharing this work, sharing other work with other like really engaged, smart, talented, creative people, um, being in a community where everybody was talking about books. Um, for me, that was really, really important. Um, and then also like, just to sort of like, um, and, and you don't need an MFA for any of this, by the way, but for me, it was useful um, just to sort of like, think of myself as a writer and think of this book as potentially being a real book in the world, especially because it took me so long. Like I think, you know, be, seeing friends books come out um, and like have having people around me who like thought of me as a writer um, because they had been a colleague of mine in graduate school, like that really helped me in, in, in bringing this book into the world. Yeah, you know, I and that's an interesting point. I mean, I. I'm a non-MFA, but I teach writing because I believe mm. in the craft of it. I, yeah. I learned it, you know, I learned it the hard way because I was working full time and I had to kind of take classes and workshops and my holiday, summer, you know, vacations and all that. But I, I agree with you. I think the journey, having people around you who are serious about writing and serious about the craft of writing and that gives confidence, right? So I can see what you're saying about that. That gives confidence to kind of write an ambitious book and, and allow yourself time to write it. And then I obviously, you know, I, I felt like obviously as I read the book, you know, your journalism career, you know, the tech beat certainly influenced a lot of the content. And I imagine that maybe parts of the book would not have happened if you hadn't had that career. Yeah, as, as a journalist. Right? Yeah, that, that's very true too. Yeah, because I mean, I I see people like I, I was thinking about the other tech not tech related novel um, that I've read uh, recently, and it was the Startup Wife by Tamima Anand. Oh yeah, out, I think last year. And in her case, she wasn't a journalist; she wasn't doing the tech, lead, but her husband happens to be involved in the tech world, and that's she's right. on the board or something. 
and I can tell you, I mean, she, I, th I think she nailed some of the bits of the tech world very well. And I know that it's because of that exposure, that direct firsthand exposure, which I'm assuming you also had. And so I think there is something to be said clearly for having certain, you know, life experiences that, that you can bring to the page. Yeah, um, absolutely. And definitely like all that, like the, some of the thinking about tech um, and the specific details of how the tech works were very, very informed by like, like my own journalism colleagues of mine, and then also sources who would just sort of like talk off the cuff about their feelings about the industry. Um, uh, and like, it couldn't go, you know, their speculation, you know, it couldn't go in like anything journalistic, but like, I would always file that away and be like, oh, okay, that helps me understand like what's happening now, what might happen in the future. Yep, yep. So, so obviously, you know, the next few months are gonna be this drinking from a fire hose with the promotion cycle and everything, but yeah. what's next once this book is kind of well on its way in the world, what's next for you? Are you still gonna be doing your journalism? Are you focused already on another book? Is that something you can even, I mean, not, not share the details of it, but just share what you're working on next. Maybe. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can never not do journalism. I, I love it too much. So I, yes, I will continue to do journalism. Um, I love editing as well, which I, is another, another thing I do in teaching. So I will continue to do all of that. Um, I do have another book coming out next year, um, which is a short story collection called This Is Salvaged, also coming out on Norton. I don't know when next year, but right now I'm in the middle of edits on that. So it's nice, like I have this, this other book that needs to occupy my attention so that, you know, I don't get too caught up in all the, all the book promotion, the ups and downs of the book promotion cycle. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about those stories. Those are stories are also... Um, I've also been working on those stories for a really long time, so I'm excited to get them out in the world. Oh, yeah. Now that you mention it, I do recall reading that somewhere as well, that it was a two-book deal, right? Yeah, that's right. Like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I, I see that a lot, you know, with with um, with some of the, these publishers, um, which I can understand. They want to come out with a novel first because the short story collections, they don't want to usually do a debut with the collection and that's a whole separate conversation, but. That's right. Um, well, I will say, can I just say real quick, Jenny? Cause I imagine yeah. like there, there are some emerging writers mm -hmm. who listen to this podcast. My, my agent tried to sell my short story collection by itself in 2015 mm -hmm. and couldn't sell it. Mm -hmm. um, and then it sold as part of this two book deal, like yeah. totally the same story collection. And so I just wanted to, to note that um, just to say that like, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like luck and happenstance in this, in this industry. Right. And I think to you, I mean, it's also, you know, just how publishing, how the publishing ecosystem tends to look at short story collections. Well, right. I mean, right. I, I, I know several writers, some of whom have been on this podcast, who've done exactly what you did, which is they had the collection, they tried to sell it, didn't happen, they go, got the novel, and the agent was able to sell it as a two-book deal, and that's just the way it goes, and some of us didn't know that when we started out, <laughs> so, right. you know, that's how it went, um, but okay, that brings me to my last question, which is the usual one I ask everybody, what's your favorite Desi book and why? And I know it's hard to pick one, so it could just be something you read recently that stayed with you. Oh, I have so many. Um, let me actually plug a book that I'm realizing now, I think I first read about a couple of weeks ago on your site. Um, which is this book by a Telugu Dalit female writer 
called um, My Father may, Father may be an elephant, oh, yeah. mother only a small basket, but um, it it's it's been published by Tilted Access, which is in sorry, Tilted Axis, um, not Access, which is in the UK, but you can if you're in the US or anywhere else in the world, um, you can order that book online and it'll come to you here in the US. Um, and I'm reading it now and I think it's wonderful. Um, so I'm really enjoying that book. And then just if I can plug a couple of books that are coming out later this summer for people to keep an eye out for, two books that I loved were Zayn Khalid's Brother Alive, which is coming out on Grove in July, and Sarah Thuncum Matthews's, um, uh, oh shoot, I would, All This Could Be Different is the name of her book. And they're both just extraordinary, like two of my favorite books that I've recently read. Um, and by um, authors with with South Asian roots, so those are those are two additional books I would I would plug. Excellent, yeah, I know I, I do have both on my radar, and we may be having Sarah on as well, so that will be good. And then that, yeah, the Gogu Shamala book, the the Dalit writer book that you mentioned, which is a translation, and interestingly, it's a collaboration between multiple translators, and I've actually got something coming up with all of them. Um, we'll be talking about this whole process of collaborative translation because I'm also fascinated oh. with that book. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's hard. It's hard to translate books anyways and then to do it as a collaboration where you're trying to all maintain that single voice of the original writer. That can't be easy. I was so, so curious about that. Well, I'll look forward to listening to the to the podcast episode because I also was like, so how do you how do you do that? Why do you take that approach in the first place? So I'm sure you're going to be asking all those questions. Well, it's probably not going to be a podcast because I can't logistically get so many on. Oh, and, sure. But, but it'll be like a text thing. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, great. But yeah, so you'll be able to read it. But yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. And that's a great collection. And, you know, I, I again, you know, short story collections get short shrift, literary translations get short shrift. So it's probably not getting as much um, visibility as it should. So I'm glad you highlighted it. And, and I'm yeah. glad it's, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this time and for your thoughtful responses to my questions and allowing me to ramble a little bit because I was excited to read the book because of my tech background and so I, I really enjoyed it and I wish you all the very best with this book and the next one that's coming of course and um, you know um, just I, I hope it goes lots of places and inspires a lot of other people. Oh thank you so much Jenny and it's really an honor to be on, on this podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan of everything oh, you're doing. Oh thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to episode 79 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. Today's Desi craft chat was with Vahini Vara discussing her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, how she braided multiple storylines together, why she ended with a question about human ambition, and how her MFA helped her bring this first book into the world and much more episode 80 will be up shortly follow on twitter at desi books instagram at desi.books facebook at desi books fb tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions and please go to the website if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter 
That's daisybooks.co. And please share this interview via social media so we can keep raising the tide of Desi literature. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. <laughs>